following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Support for this podcast is provided by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck & Co. Incorporated, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our Office of Education podcast series with this podcast specifically focusing on the topic of surgical implications for LGBTQ patients. Um, it's really my pleasure to host two thought leaders in this space. Uh, Dr. Chana Amarasekara, who's an assistant professor of urology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, uh, with a clinical focus in research that's dedicated to identifying and addressing urologic healthcare disparities facing sexual minority populations. He's also the director of the Gay and Bisexual Men's Urology Program at Northwestern. We're also delighted to have Dr. Simon Rosser, who's professor in the Division of Epidemiology and Community Health at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine, uh, sorry, School of Public Health. He's a psychologist and an epidemiologist by training. He specializes in research to advance gay and bisexual men's health. And he recently completed the first two large studies of gay and bisexual prostate cancer patients funded by the National Cancer Institute and the NIH. Uh, first of all, uh, Simon and Chana, thank you so much for taking some time and, and joining. It's really our pleasure to have both of you as part of our podcast series. Thanks for having thank us. Pleasure to be here. So um, I, I think when we just take sort of a broad view, I think some of the topics we're going to be covering today is really looking at uh, urologic health disparities facing sexual minority patients, specifically as it perhaps relates to prostate cancer. We'll touch on issues such as PSA screening, treatment choices, and treatment side effects that may sometimes be different for sexual minorities. And we'll briefly touch upon the transgender patients and prostate cancer. And so I, I guess I would, with that sort of um, takeoff point, uh, I'd maybe ask you both, just as, as a really, you know, something that's so germane to urology practice, Maybe give me a sense and give our listeners a little bit of a sense of PSA screening and, and maybe how is PSA screening uh, maybe different in this patient population versus uh, perhaps sort of maybe the general population? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, PSA screening, the recommendations are, are very similar for this population and the general population, I or they're identical, really. Um, the same men generally should be screened for prostate cancer. But in terms of, you know, who actually gets screened, there's some data that show that LGBT people may be at higher risk of not being screened. This is particularly true for lesbian women and, and breast cancer. There's a lower rate of mammography and screening in that area. But the data for prostate cancer screening in, in gay and bisexual men um, has been conflicting. So there's mixed data. There's some studies that show equal rates of screening and other studies that show lower rates of screening. 
Um, some of this has to do with temporal trends. So with, um, with the uh, legalization of same-sex marriage, there is uh, ex you know extension of healthcare benefits to a spouse and potentially a greater degree of uh, healthcare coverage for some men over the course of the last six or seven years. So some of this data may be getting better, but historically there has been lower PSA screening um, within this population, and it appears to be getting better over time. And, and maybe, uh, Simon, your thoughts are even within this patient population, are there certain subgroups that seem to have even greater rates of maybe not either not having access or not getting screened when you look at sort of the LGBTQ population? One of the things we know is that African-American gay men are uh, likely to less likely to have a PSA uh, test. The research shows that about 14% less likely compared to heterosexual men and 28% like, uh, less likely compared to other gay men. We also don't really know enough about how men who engage in receptive sex, whether they engage in higher rates or lower rates of screening, but there is a consideration, a practical consideration for valid testing. And that is if a man has had recent receptive anal sex, uh, the results may be falsely elevated. And so it's important if you have a gay patient and you're screening them for PSA to uh, pre-warn them not to have receptive anal sex or receptive stimulation uh, prior to the test, say 24, 48 hours before. And probably the corollary to that is if we do see a patient in that population, probably to ask that question, right? I mean, I feel like the last thing we want to do is go down a rabbit's hole of maybe follow-up testing or ancillary procedures where maybe there's a, a very good reason why that test could have been falsely elevated. So we should probably be asking or at least, you know, querying that question in our minds and asking the patient, would that be a, a fair statement? Exactly. So, I would agree. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. I think generally, as urologists, when we think about PSA testing and, you know, elevations with sexual activity, we typically ask people if they've ejaculated within 48 hours of the test. But when you're seeing a, a man who, who engages in receptive anal intercourse, you, you know, as for, for reasons that may be obvious or may not, um, there is mechanical trauma to the prostate and there's release of PSA um, and it may linger in their blood for a little bit longer or the spike may be higher. Um, so it's just a different question that you ask uh, these men. So when, let's sort of change gears here a little bit and maybe we'll talk about two um, related but 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 distinct distinct topics. So let's, let's talk about um, treatment and let's talk about um, if, if a patient has had treatment, um, I think one of the things that we probably don't understand as well as we should is um, data regarding sexual function, um, degree of bother, um, and, and how we should be thinking about this compared to perhaps the general population. So what are some of the things or some of the information pertaining sexual function after treatment, and I guess treatment's a broad, sort of a broad statement, but after treatment, and what sort of nuances should we be thinking about in this patient population? Um, so, you know, I, I think when you think about treatment for this population, um, there are a lot of similarities when you, when there are studies looking at what's most important, this population, you know, states oncologic control and, and treating the cancer is most important. 
but beyond that, there are you know some important differences when it comes to sexual function. Um, there are studies that show you know even with the same or slightly better you know rates of erectile dysfunction, um, gay men may be a little more bothered by uh, a lack of of uh, firmer erections, and there are many reasons for this. Um, it could be the loss of an op loss of an opportunity to explore a recently accepted sexuality for a lot of older gay men who came out later in life. Um, it could also be, you know, the expectations of having an active sex life later later into their um, uh, older years. Um, it may be higher rates of sexual activity or non-monogamous relationships in um, uh, MSM or gay relationships compared to heterosexual their heterosexual peers. Um, and then from a practical standpoint, um, a firmer erection is needed for penetrative anal intercourse compared to vaginal sex. So um, a similar decline in erectile function may be felt more profoundly by, again, bisexual men engaging in penetrative intercourse uh, compared to straight men. So Simon, maybe one question I'd ask you is, 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 this, um, is this data um, universally true? Is there some controversy here? Is, are, are there differing opinions perhaps on, on you know, what China just talked about? Um, maybe your thoughts on that. Well, first, the research in this area is a, it's a hugely under-researched area. And so um, we really only have three studies that have looked into this. And in terms of the studies, what's clear is across all the studies, sexual function is better, but urinary function, um, bowel function, and um, hormonal function uh, all are consistently uh, worse. Um, the, we think that the sexual bother is greater in gay men. Um, that's reasonable for the reasons that uh, uh, China mentioned. But um, we actually, there's conflicting evidence. The largest study supports that there's bother there. And so it's reasonable to assume that. So, I guess one of the, the questions I would ask you, and probably one of the things, you know, as somebody who does a lot of these procedures, I, I don't do as good a job at doing is sometimes counseling these men, for example, on ejaculate volume post-procedure. You know, the number that come into my office and say, I didn't realize I was going to have a dry ejaculate after the procedure. And I realized I spent most of my discussion talking about cancer control and urine function and probably didn't de delve into what I thought was sort of a nuance. Is that any different? In, in gay men, LGBTQ, is that different in this patient population? Does this degree of bother about ejaculate, ejaculate volume, dry ejaculate, is that different or, or is it one and the same? I think it's different. There's data that show that, that gay men value that and it's just a sign of, of good sex. And it's, it's uh, there's a different importance placed on, on having ejaculate with it, of course. Um, you know, of course, like when you when you treat prostate cancer, you're going to have this side effect, uh, or there's a high likelihood you're going to have this side effect. Um, and I think there's very little you can do to avoid it in many cases, but just counseling patients before so they don't feel like they were blindsided by the side effect uh, is helpful, um, just so they can prepare for it and they kind of make an informed decision and go into it, understanding that this is what's going to happen. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe I jumped ahead a little bit, but I'm, I'm thinking to myself, we talked a little bit about sexual function. 
but I, I feel like you know maybe the the question even before you get to to how sexual function or how the patient perceives sexual function is how do you measure sexual function? I mean, should we be using different tools um, in in this patient population? Should we be asking different questions at a baseline before we go down the road of therapy? And maybe uh, Simon, I maybe start with you. I mean, should we be asking different questions and should we be using different tools or do we use the same tools that we use like the IIEF and the SHIM score and things like that? Sure. When we started our research on gay and bisexual men, one of the challenges was the measures because there's an assumption, which is very reasonable for heterosexual men, that they have the inserted partner in sex. But that assumption doesn't necessarily hold for gay men. So when you're asking about intercourse and how firm the erection is for intercourse, if a man doesn't engage in insertive sex, they don't know how to answer it. And there's two implications there. Like if I take the shim, for example, which is only uh, of the 13 most common used instruments in, in urology, about six of them, gay men couldn't answer. Hmm. So the older instruments talk about vaginal intercourse, and we know that the strength of erection for anal intercourse it needs to be stronger, so it doesn't generalize. Um, but if we take the shim as an example, um, we've had uh, several patients say, you know, when I went to my urologist, he gave me a form that I couldn't answer. Hmm. And it either forces me to out myself or it just gives me the impression that they don't know what's going on for men like me. Yeah, I, th I think that's a that's a really uh, important point. And maybe, Simon, you could talk about the new SMACS scale. Um, yeah. So we we have been. Uh, thank you. Um, we have been uh, designing new measures, and there's one currently in press coming out, which does uh, measure change in receptive anal sex functioning. A second issue that we found was very common in gay men, and I suspect straight men as well, but they're not talking about it to their uh, urologist. Is urinary sex? Hello. Something got some feedback there. Um, so what we found in uh, the two largest studies of um, gay and bisexual prostate cancer uh, patients to date is about two-thirds of them are reporting some urinary incontinence during sex, either through arousal incontinence or climaturia. And um, most of them are reporting that they don't report it to their clinicians. So it's clearly something that's distressing. It's something that they need to manage. So a good clinician to help patients should perhaps be proactive and just ask them about urine during sex as part of any other assessment of urine functioning. Sean, any, any additional thoughts on that? I mean, I, I actually, the, when Simon mentioned that, I, I actually pulled up the SHIM score and, I, and it was eye-opening to me that I, how many of those questions actually may not be wholly applicable um, are there other considerations that that we haven't covered here that are that are I think unique for us to to know and think about before therapy? Because I, I think you know when you measure outcomes, if you don't ask the right questions before, it's like garbage in, garbage out, right? You don't ask the right questions beforehand, you're probably not going to get any sort of re reasonable endpoints on the back end of whatever procedure or treatment is done. Anything else we should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, true of straight men and and sexual minority men we've you know traditionally thought of sex as being you know penetrative vaginal intercourse and you know that may not be 
you know, where things end for or begin and end for most people. Um, they may engage in other activities that are not covered by the shin, even if they're, you know, heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, understanding what's important to these patients, to every patient, you know, before, um, you know, talking about treatment and, and trying to figure out w- what, you know, what it is they they you know value in terms of uh, sexual function is helpful because it can help you you know guide them through treatment and it can also help you counsel them um, before you um, you know begin um, this journey with them. So, if we think about sex and sexual intercourse after treatment, what um, whatever that treatment might be, surgery, radiation, but but after treatment. Maybe for a, a patient, how does that change? What, what, what is the evolution that may occur that may be unique in this patient population um, after treatment um, in, in that domain? So one of the things we already talked about, which was you know erectile function just needs to be firmer if they're going to be the penetrative partner um, for anal intercourse. But the other that I think we forget to ask people about is if they're the receptive partner um, and they have receptive anal intercourse, that sensitivity may be different after a prostatectomy, um, or if they get, you know, radiation, there could be fibrosis to the, the, the rectum, and that could make it very mm. painful, um, or it can make it um, bloody, or they may not be able to engage in something that they enjoyed before uh, treatment. And that's supported by our studies as well. We've now done two studies focused on the impact of prostate cancer treatment on receptive anal functioning. And in both, we see the rates of what's called anodyspareunia. That's painful receptive anal sex to the extent that they cannot continue. It doubles pre-post-treatment. So it's a real issue that they um, need to deal with. So Simon, uh, to, to that question, that you, is that a question that we should be asking before? I'm assuming in order to know that there's a worse after, we should be asking this question before treatment. Absolutely. And particularly during treatment decision-making. So if a man prefers receptive anal sex and may not be able to engage in insertive anal sex, um, then if you ask him before and you warn him about the effects of radiation in particular, then the person can make an informed decision about what treatment fits them. But if you don't ask, then what we see in patients um, they are surprised when suddenly they can't function and it leads to lasting um, treatment regret. And just to, just to educate me, just in the realm of anodyspareunia, when you talk about treatment doubling that, right, doubling the rates, is that surgery and radiation is one, in your experience, is one different than the other or is it is all one in the same? Interestingly enough, we see it in both the surgery patients and the radiation patients, we saw no statistically significant difference. Hmm. Now, that may just be because we're still learning how to ask the questions and explore. More research needs to be done in the area to really fully understand it. Uh, We're also exploring in terms of research possible treatments and whether anal dilators may be able to help some men restore their functioning. So, so Chana, maybe um, what about this concept of switching roles? So maybe a, a, a man who has erectile dysfunction post-procedure um, and the whole concept of switching roles, um, 
Is that, yeah. is that something that's readily done? Are there some barriers associated with that psychologically? What, what's the literature on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, if there's erectile dysfunction, there is um, an opportunity for men who engage in receptive anal intercourse to be, uh, to switch roles. And that's, you know, from being the insertive partner to the receptive partner. Uh, but that's not, you know, available to everyone because they may not, you know, want to do that, or they may have a partner who doesn't want to be the insertive partner, or for whatever reason, they may not want to be the receptive partner. They may view it as a more submissive role, or they may have, you know, pain associated with it, or um, it, it just may not be of something that's of interest to them. Um, so it's not always possible. Um, and I, I don't think we can always expect patients to do that just because that it just may not be their preference. Um, but it is important to note that, that, that there is that opportunity for patients and, you know, potentially exploring that as an option is worthwhile. And then maybe Simon, a question for you. What, what, what about the post-treatment period and, and risk of, uh, sexually transmitted infections? Is, is there such a higher risk? Why, why would there be a higher risk? What, what's some of the, the changes that may occur that, that would, would contribute to this? Yeah, we observed in both uh, the studies we've done um, in about 193 patients in the first study and 401 in the second, we observed a, a disturbing rate of men uh, becoming HIV positive or uh, being diagnosed with an STI afterwards. We're not certain why. Uh, there could be several things involved. The first thing is that uh, any kind of prostate cancer treatment has major effects on sexual functioning. So it makes sense that afterwards these men are experimenting, they may experiment with different roles before they decide what they are. But particularly the men who used to be exclusively uh, insertive partners, um, they may be experimenting, for example, with receptive anal sex. And, you know, from an HIV risk standpoint, that's a 20-fold increase in risk. Uh, we know when uh, in one of our studies where we examined the relationship between um, getting an STI um, following treatment, what we observe when we uh, do research is um, an interesting rate. We don't know if it's higher than what would occur normally of guys acquiring HIV and STIs. When you think about the age of the men who are getting diagnosed with prostate cancer, these are men who lived through the worst years of the HIV AIDS pandemic. And they've received over 40 years of education in how to avoid STIs. There could be many things causing this. We need to do more research. Um, but one of the things is that um, we know that about 60% of men engaging in unprotective insertive sex report their erections are too soft to use condoms. And some men may also experiment with uh, receptive anal sex, and that holds a 20-fold increased risk of HIV acquisition. Hmm. So it's reasonable to think that it's going on. Uh, one of the things that clinicians can do is ask about HIV risk and, and any unprotected sex. Uh, fortunately, pre-exposure prophylaxis is the recommended standard of treatment. So we have good biomedical interventions to uh, help people who maybe are struggling to regain a sex life, not to become HIV positive. 
So, Chana, you you obviously you 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 built a program at Northwestern that um, really maybe has a niche focus in this area. Simon, you've done an extensive amount of research in this space. So now I'm going to ask you, sort of, uh, what should the rest of us who perhaps don't have this expertise or don't have a population of patients that we are uh, maybe preferentially seeing because we have developed a reputation, just the average general urologist, what should we be thinking about? What should we be sensitive to when we're treating gay and bisexual patients and, and considering prostate cancer, prostate cancer screening, PSA? What are the things that we should be doing and keeping in mind when we see patients in the office? I think a, a first step is to you know find out um, who identifies as, as gay or bisexual and, and putting a uh, demographic form, like an area or a, a checkbox that they can check or not check uh, on a demographic form is helpful to identify these patients so you know how to counsel uh, these patients and you don't get into the weeds of prostate cancer treatment and focus on heterosexuals when you know some of that may not apply to, to gay men or bisexual men. So just not alienating these patients is, is important. Um, and then, you know, once you do identify um, who's gay and bisexual, just, you know, a conversational approach to, uh, to treatment and side effects and uh, figuring out what's important, I, I think is really helpful just to build trust um, going forward with treatment. I'd agree. Uh, I think there's some simple questions that any clinician can ask to clarify. So rather than assuming when a patient comes in that they're heterosexual, just asking if they have a primary partner. Do you have sex with men, women, or both? And if a person responds with that they have sex with men or both, then it's really important to ask in sex, are you more a top, a bottom, or versatile? Which is the conversational language that gay men refer to each other in, and talk about that. And then if they say that they're the receptive partner, you can start having a conversation about the differences in radi between radiation and... Um, and um, surgery. Yeah. And I, th you know, I think most people understand that, you know, their, their doctors may not know the ins and outs of, of gay life or, or how LGBT people, you know, like what's important to them. But I think, I think, you know, a lot of people, if you're genuinely curious about it and you're, you're not judgmental, they would be more than happy to uh, have that conversation. I just think it takes, you know, some humility in, in knowing that, you know, you may not know everything about this population and um, the, uh, I guess, the courage to ask them um, in some ways um, to, to start that conversation. That's really important. Yeah. And from the patient's point of view, you know, it's helpful to remember they don't know what the physician should know. So putting the burden on the patient necessary to come out they're not sure whether there's of the effects of treatment, so they may not know to disclose this information. It's also, uh, we have some interesting demographic differences in um, gay men compared to heterosexual men. They're far more likely to be single. Prostate cancer is still a very taboo topic in the gay community where most men don't know anything about the prostate. And so they're far more likely to present alone and the clinician may be the only person that they can ask about any questions. So they may come in with more questions. And depending on your viewpoint, that may, you know, some clinicians we've uh, listened to may even view that as more troublesome. 
But when you appreciate that their support network is a lot smaller and this is their one opportunity to ask, it makes sense that they may be asking more questions. So I guess my corollary to that is if if perhaps their support network is smaller or more limited, do gay and bisexual men expect a, a different relationship with you or I or their healthcare provider um, with regard to these questions? As you mentioned, right, that, that, that they may have more questions than the average patient. Is that because they're relying more on you as part of their support infrastructure or, or maybe just comment on that? With... with I'd, I'd be interested in what Chana says, but at least from the research angle, uh, there's two big differences in gay patients. Most of the men who are being seen now for prostate cancer live through the AIDS epidemic. They have lived through keeping silent from their doctors and watching their friends die. So they learn to have a different relationship with uh, doctors, particularly if they're HIV positive. They've often learned to be a lot more assertive and they expect their questions to be answered. They expect to be open about their sexuality. They expect the doctor to ask relevant questions and to know how to treat them. It's always fine to say, I don't know, I'll find out. But then they suddenly hit a specialist who doesn't seem to know what to ask. And so that can be very jarring from the patient's perspective. When we look at discrimination in um, experiences and treatment, we find about one in every two um, gay men report being discriminated against during treatment. And interesting enough, those who report discrimination uh, also report poorer outcomes. So the findings of early research, and it's still the early days, are consistent with how the clinician approaches the patient is impacting patient outcomes. It's not enough to be a good technician. You need to also be a good clinician and ask the right questions. Yes, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think a, a lot of gay patients that make it, or again, bisexual patients or sexual minority patients that make it to the doctor's office have been screened. And a lot of them who see you are, are you know, very likely to advocate for themselves just because of the history of having to do so. And, and the discrimination that they perceive, you know, it's important to note that a lot of this may just be, um, you know, a perception that's, you know, inadvertent on the, the side of the physician. I, I don't think, you know, at least I hope not. We're, we're in a, a, a time where there's not a lot of open discrimination um, at this point, but some of it may be inadvertent. And, you know, hopefully, you know, podcasts like this, um, you know, help educate people about what's important. Um, and allow patients to know that we're interested in, in, in them as a person and, and their lives, and uh, we want to tailor care to them. And I think that'll, that'll go a long way in helping these patients feel cared for. So we, we've been talking about, uh, for the better part, about 25 minutes now, the gay and bisexual male population. Um, maybe I, I'm going to finish with a, a sort of a, a different population, which is the transgender patients. And and um, specifically transgender patients, PSA screening, prostate cancer. Um, maybe uh, either China or Simon, either of you, what should we be thinking about? What should we be thinking about differently? Um, and what do we need to be considering with regard to screening this patient population for prostate cancer? Well, I think one of the important things to figure out is if you're transgender, um, 
women are on hormone, uh, gender affirming hormone therapy. Um, cause the way, you know, prostate cancer responds or the way PSA responds to hormones can, can affect, um, screening. Um, so if you have, you know, estrogen therapy, you, you can expect the PSA to be lower than in a cis male. Um, there's no, there's not a lot of data. I mean, I should start by saying that, um, there's a dearth of data on transgender women and prostate cancer. But you can expect that, you know, screening levels of P for PSA should be lower, like a cutoff should be lower to, to trigger a biopsy. And there's no great data on this, but there's expert opinion that suggests one as a cutoff uh, to trigger a biopsy in these women. Um, oftentimes, at least in the case series, um, looking at transgender women with prostate cancer, um, over half of them present with metastatic disease. So there appears to be lower levels of screening or just higher levels of metastatic disease on presentation. Um, but there's also some data showing a very low prevalence of prostate cancer in this group of like 0.04% um, in the largest study. Um, so it, it's unclear if that's because of lower levels of screening and presentation to within the healthcare system, um, or if there truly is a lower level of, of prostate cancer. Um, so I, I think the jury's out. I, I think we just need a, a lot more data on this population um, before we, you know, just to just to know more about it. Simon, any thoughts? I think from the clinical perspective, one of the very useful exercises a clinician can do is walk through the waiting room and imagine for a moment that you're a gay man or imagine for a moment that you're a transgender woman and just ask yourself, how comfortable would a person feel in my clinic? Hmm. And it's because, you know, clinics are, are diverse and some are... Um, almost like an airport lounge. Um, <laughs> it's very open and, and welcome to all. But some more traditional urology clinics can feel hypermasculine or very heterosexual. And that leaves both transgender women feeling very objectified. Um, having 10 residents all stare at the transgender person, probably not the best care to make them feel comfortable. So um, there's ways that we can take a look at our structures and how we're set up and just ask ourselves, are we a professional looking clinic ready to treat people in the 21st century? Or are we engaged in some ways of sending some pretty strong messages that uh, we expect the patients to be heterosexual males coming through here? Yeah, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I, I, you know, I think the messaging that you uh, send out um, in your waiting room, even before the, the patient sees you, can set the tone for your visit, and it can really affect the the way that patient perceives you or you know your care. And you can use it um, to your favor because, I mean, as as we all know, urologists and clinicians in general are are very busy. We have to, you know, th there's a lot of people we're we're serving, and we you know generally have tight clinic schedules. And we can, you know, help patients who are gay and bisexual or transgender um, learn more about prostate cancer. If we have pamphlets about how prostate cancer affects them differently and, and you know, what, what some of the, the side effects are, how to go about choosing treatment um, and just, you know, prostate cancer uh, treatment for the sexual minority. If we have pamphlets on that, they can perhaps, you know, read it while they're waiting. A lot of their questions will be answered before they see you. And it gives them a sense that you're open to that conversation, you're, uh, that they're welcome in your office. 
That's great. No, I, I, I have to say this has uh, uh, been really a, a great uh, last 30, 35 minutes. Uh, uh, the, um, the dialogue was really interesting. It, it's, it's amazing, even for those of us that do a lot of work in this space, uh, I leave this discussion realizing how much more I could actually be doing to, to understand this better. Probably the questions I should be asking that I'm not, uh, frankly, in the office setting. So I, I hope that for our listeners, uh, you know, if they even take a small portion of what we talked about today, it'll probably improve what they're able to deliver in the office uh, setting. And not, not just for prostate cancer, but just sort of, you know, for, for the general male population that we see. Um, I really want to thank you both uh, for your time, obviously your expertise. Um, I want to thank our audience as well for listening. And certainly for uh, more information, please visit auanet.org slash university. Uh, Chana, uh, have a great afternoon. Simon, thank you so much for joining us from uh, in Spain. And you have a, have a great evening and a, and a great late dinner. Thanks. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure.